afternoon, everybody. You know, every week, every week you never know what's going to happen. Like the 9 a.m. is sometimes super sleepy, but like today the 9 a.m. came out like ready to worship and ready to praise and they were all in. And usually the 10.30, like that's the easy one. Everybody's caffeined up the right way. There's enough people in the room. And they were like, hmm, we don't know. And like it took them a while. And then with noon, you never know. You guys, we never know what's going to happen. You might be hungry and not paying attention. You might be low on blood sugar. Um, but today you went in on worship. So thank you for that. You guys are amazing. Thanks for being here. Um, and I was gone last week. I apologize, but Pastor Mike was amazing in his sermon last week. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for con- continuing the series. Yeah, man. So good. Um, I was up in Portland hanging out with our campus up in Portland. Usually there's about 160 to 200 people there, which was just phenomenal. They're such a great team. And um, as you notice, Pastor Isai's not here right now. He's actually in Texas playing, um, playing music at the Scent Conference, which is this massive church conference, playing with the Circuit Riders, who are um, a worship team. I'm not really, I think they might be out of Atlanta. I'm not positive. But he's playing keys for them. I think last night he played for like 16,000 people which is amazing. So praise God for that and pray for him as he's, you know, going to have to come back to reality and just hang out with us. He's going to be all, I'm special. And we're like, no, you're not. I mean, you are, but not that kind of, anyway, it's going to be a whole thing on Tuesday. So pray for us. (laughs) Just kidding. None of that's true. Um, Except that he is out there playing. That's true. Anyway, forget it. Thanks for being here. Um, We're talking about where God shows up in the Old Testament. And we've called this um, series Christophany, kind of a play on the word theophany, which is a manifestation of God and the manifestations of God that we see in Scripture. And, um, and the pitch that we've been making, the, the concept, the philosophical idea is that we look through the cross to the Old Testament to see where Jesus shows up. That is always going to be our vantage point, looking through the cross, that filter, that lens of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. That is always going to be the lens in which we look at the cross. However, we look at our lives that way as well. And so I'm going to ask you a question this morning. What was your Christophany this week? Where did you see Christ? Where did God break through um, when my daughter was in the youth group here with Isai, when he was our youth pastor, every week he would ask a question. He would say, what's your highs and what's your lows? And where did Christ break through? Where did Jesus break through? And my daughter got used to asking those questions and she really liked it. And so we need to understand that even though we're looking at the Old Testament, this is because we believe in the relevance of Jesus today. We believe that we serve a risen God and he still breaks through. And so we can't not ask this question. What was your Christophany? Where did you see God and how are you looking for God to break through? But I got to tell you, when Christ breaks through, usually something happens. So there's a, there's a companion question. And the companion question to what was your Christophany this week is how has that Christophany changed you? Because at the end of the day, this is sort of the point of it. Right? It's not just that we see Jesus. It's that we're transformed by his grace, his love, his compassion, his mercy, his justice, his joy. Right? And, and sometimes it's a profound change and sometimes it's just a bit. But can you remember a time when you were drastically changed by encountering God? I, I love this. I love the 30-second the bit on camp up there because I remember when I worked at that camp. I only worked for two summers at camp. And um, I was the programming director. And so we came up with all these skits and plays and stuff. And um, I remember the, the first night of camp, there are smaller kids, but there's some older ones there too. 
And we had put this huge play together on Friday night. It's this kind of passion play about Jesus and the whole thing. And I had written it from scratch, and I don't even remember what it was now, but um, there's this moment where we ask, you know, the pastor of the week asks, is there anyone who wants to accept Christ? And so we had done this whole thing, and it's always, you know, that's always an awkward moment when somebody asks that question because, you know, maybe nobody shows up and maybe nobody's moved or whatever. And I remember standing there like, pastor asked the question, nobody moves. I'm like, man, I didn't do a good job. This is horrible. I didn't represent Christ well. And then sometimes these things happen, like there's kids, so there's kind of a mob mentality. And the pastor asked all the kids stand up and walk down. This was not the case. This was a very quiet, very awkward. And then I see this one kid and he's like, and he stands up and he sort of looks around to see if anybody else is coming. But then this look on his face changed from Oh, I wonder if I should do this too. No, this is not about anybody else. This is about me. And I remember him like walking out of his aisle wherever he was on the bench he was on and, and walking down. And I remember thinking, wow, something that I did changed someone in the way that they thought about Christ or the way that they wanted to connect with Christ. That was profound change for me. Camp has been that. But you know, it's, it's difficult. There was, there was another person in my life that was a... I guess I'll say it this way. If we're asking about how Christophany changes you, when you come in contact with that Christophany, it's not always positive. Like what happens when you have a negative Christophany? When it comes and it's... So I'll tell you, I was, I was a sophomore in high school and um, I played on the basketball team. I had made... Uh, I made varsity my freshman year, so I thought I was all that. And um, I was just tall, and it was a small school. That's really the only thing that happened. I was horrible. But, um, but we're, we had a new coach, and none of us knew him. And so we're waiting in the gym, and this man comes walking in, relatively diminutive, not a huge man, probably, you know, 5'6", five, 5'7", five, not, not somebody you would think like, oh, he's a basketball player. He walks in, and I noticed two things immediately. First of all, this is a driven man. This is a man who walks with purpose. Have you met those people? Those people who walk as if they're, they're going somewhere, even if they're not going anywhere? That's what he, he walked, and he looked, and he was going. And underneath his arms, he had a pair of Adidas sneakers that looked brand new and were probably 15 or 20 years old, right? By the way, I'm kind of old, so that was like 1987, so they were probably early 70s Adidas shoes. Now, if you're a sneakerhead, you know, yeah, those are all right. Anyway, he shows up and they're brand new, and I'm like, what? Who is this guy? And he goes and he sits down, doesn't say a word to any of us. He goes, he sits down, and kind of like Mr. Rogers, he takes off his shoes and puts on his new shoes. And he walks up, and we're all standing in a line. And a couple, of, a couple of people had come in after him and he looks at this one kid and he says, you, you were three minutes late. And the kid goes, yeah, I'm sorry. And he goes, 30 laps. There's a general rule that you get like a lap a minute. Like you get, that's not bad. Three laps for three minutes, 30 laps. And this kid's like, what? And we all thought we are in real trouble. This man didn't smile. This man didn't laugh. He blew a whistle loudly and said, get on the line. We would run until we would throw up, and then we'd get back on the line and start running more. It was abuse. It was child abuse, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> We'd never been coached like this. And I thought, this is horrible. This is just horrible. This guy is going to transform this team, but I'm not sure it's going to be a good transformation. Like, I don't, I don't know how this is going to go. Sometimes we encounter people, but sometimes we encounter Christ, and it's kind of a negative 
interaction right at first. I mean, who in Scripture had a negative Christophany? When you think about it, most people. Most people, when they met Jesus, they weren't just happy. They were challenged. They were pushed. They were, you know, almost made, not made fun of, but Jesus would say something and they were like, oh, great. Meeting Jesus, having God show up is rarely comfortable, maybe never comfortable. Even if he were to show up today, C.S. Lewis says it this way, if Christ were to show up today, for this time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. Lewis is making the argument that if Jesus came back, this would be the result. Right? Sometimes coming into contact with Jesus is not the easiest thing in the world. It is usually transformational, but it is usually difficult. Today's story is much the same. A story of difficulty, a story of struggle, but a story of blessing. So if you've been following along in our series guides, which I highly recommend that you do, you understand that we're talking about Jacob. Now, Jacob is a type of of Christ. And what that means, he is a model. Remember, the Old Testament was built to prepare us for the New Testament. I mean, there's history and there's poetry and there's all these other things and prophecy and all that. But, but in the end, the Holy Spirit has used it to prepare a group of people and to prepare us for an understanding of who Jesus is, right? That's an important piece of what the Old Testament is. So there are stories in the Old Testament where there are parallels and there's hints about who Jesus might be. And then when we read those stories again through the lens of the cross, we see some of those parallels. That's why we call it a type of Christ. So we know who he was, right? He was the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, right? From Jacob, the children of Israel received their name, actually. Jacob, however, the name means to supplant, to circumvent. Easier terms are to deceive, to usurp right? Not a great name, not a great title. I don't know what your name means, but this is not the one you want. If you remember when Jacob showed up behind Esau being born, he was holding on to Esau's heel, right? Not an auspicious way to go into the world. But for some reason, Jacob was chosen by God, chosen by God to be the patriarch of a family, a family that didn't always get along that well, he was the leader of his family, 12 sons, two wives, two servant wives. Not what we're going to talk about today, but that's a, that's a lot in a household, if you ask me, right? There was discord among his son, sons, different mothers, and discord among his wives. Yet in this person, we see Jacob as a type of Christ. He was also chosen to show God's glory. And we see this in Romans, which is fascinating. It starts Romans 9, verse 10. This son was our ancestor, Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything, good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes at times. He calls people, not according to their good works or bad works, but she was told, your, oldest, your older son will serve the younger son. And then he quotes from Malachi, where it says in the words of scriptures, I love Jacob, but rejected Esau. That's, it's difficult, right? The story of Jacob and Esau in scripture is really difficult. And we're only taking a piece of it today, which I apologize for, because we could do a whole series just on them. But when we see Jacob and we see his life, we see that Jacob has two interactions with the direct manifestation of God. 
right? We call them altar experiences, if you will. One of them was when he left home, and the second one was when he came home. By the way, in that narrative, Jesus left home and came home as well, right? Both instances were marked by manifestations of God. And the first one you know, right? If you don't know it, it's Jacob's Ladder. And if you've ever sung that song, we are climbing Jacob's Ladder, I don't think anyone sings that song anymore, do they? Probably not. I haven't sung it in a hundred years. But following Jacob taking the birthright from Esau, he left for Haran. He was going to visit his father's family, but in actuality, he was running for his life. Esau was not happy. While he was en route, Jacob spent a night under the stars where he had a vision and a manifestation of God showed up. At this place, God promised him a nation from his descendants, which he didn't deserve. So he built an altar, he worshiped God, and named the place Bethel. Through Jacob, God promised to bring the Messiah. And so Jacob used a pillar to build his altar. Another connection that I think is just fascinating is that in Revelation, God says that the one who overcomes will be made a pillar in the temple of God. It's a direct parallel to the story of Jacob and clearly speaks about Jesus. Okay, well, that was the first manifestation. We're not actually spending time on that. The second manifestation is 20 years later because 20 years later, Jacob wants to come home, right? He wants to go back to his place. The night before he was to meet his brother, after years of separation, he had an encounter with God. So he wants to come home, but he was not going to be well met. If you've studied Genesis 32 in its entirety, you understand that Esau is not happy. Someone asked me the question, well, was Esau just there with 400 men to give him a royal welcome? It doesn't seem to be the case. Maybe, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And and by the way, when we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about families moving, we're talking about family and cattle and all their possessions and the servants of their household and that sort of thing. So Jacob wasn't just, you know, hanging out with his, well, either way, he wouldn't fit in a minivan with 12 sons and four wives, essentially. So there's a lot of people coming. Jacob, Esau's kind of on the other side, like waiting with 400 men, right? So Jacob does something. He divides his camp into two, right, strategically, because he knows it's going to go badly for him. And this is where we jump in, Genesis 32, 22. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. So he's taking his family away from where he is going to be because he knows something's about to happen. He understands he's on the cusp of a crisis. And being on the cusp of a crisis is always a dangerous place to be. But I do have to ask you this question. What do you do to prepare for things that are going to change? Because when crisis comes, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this about to be a transformative moment in my life or is this just a crisis? Because crises are often the way that God begins to move us towards transformation. The first step in change is often crisis. When God wants to change us, he often uses ongoing circumstances to help us realize the change that we need in our lives. I don't think God sends crisis. I think God uses crisis 
when he needs to. And it feels like, listen, it feels like we're always going into a storm in the midst of a storm or leaving a storm in our lives at times, right? So, so crisis is something that you shouldn't squander when it's about to happen to you. And these are difficult times, you know. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have lost people that you love. Some of you, you know, your circumstances in life have changed. I get it. But it is, is this a moment to begin the transformational process with God? Or is it just a crisis that you've got to somehow manage? So after taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions as well. So he's pretty much got nothing, it seems, as if except a tent. And then we get this really strange sentence that shows up. And I don't know how you all interacted with this story when you were growing up, but I always thought it took up a lot more space in Scripture than what we really get. We get like five verses on this. And this is how it starts. This left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. Hang on a minute. That seems like a big deal. Let's say you were home alone. Watching some Netflix, made a little popcorn, right? Night's over, decide to go to bed. Go to bed, there's a man in there, you wrestle with him till dawn. That's not how we're going to handle that situation, is it? You know what we call that nowadays? We call that a felony, right? We did, like, this is a big deal. It feels like they kind of buried the lead on that. They're like, he, well, he was alone in camp. And a man came and he, you know, wrestled until dawn. It, it feels like we should have more. We don't. But what we do see is that there's a confrontation. Right? Crisis leads us to a confrontation. And that's what crisis sometimes do. The confrontation can sometimes be with other people. The confrontation can sometimes be with God. The confrontation can sometimes be with ourselves. Those are the worst kind probably. Right? I don't really love confrontation, just so you know. I, I don't love it. Um, some people are really good at it. I'm not very good at it. But I'm not good at it like I, I won't win. I'm good at it like I'm going to escalate things way further than they should be. Right? You all know that kid, right, in school when you're playing in recess? And you guys like, we're just playing soccer and the kid's about to murder everyone on the campus. And you're like, man, easy, relax. And like, there's people who don't know limits. I sometimes am like that. Um, I, I, that's why I like to stay away from confrontation because I don't think it's necessarily good for me. But sometimes God has to use confrontation, right? Confrontation with him, confrontation with ourselves, confrontation with other people so that we might learn. And sometimes coming out of a crisis, we have to recognize that that confrontation is going to wake us up to the change that God is trying to do in our life. So Jacob's wrestling this guy. And then the next sentence is just as strange. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. So obviously, we're not just dealing with a man here. We're dealing with a man who has some divine powers. That person that we see in Scripture, when we see a man with divine powers, we call him Jesus, just so you know. Right? So he's wrestling. Have you ever wrestled with your kids? If you wrestle with your kids, A, you learn a lot about your kids. You've got the kid who, like, who like um, starts crying immediately because he doesn't understand why you're abusing him. Right? Watch out for that kid. You've got the kid who starts laughing and thinks it's hilarious, you know, and you end up in like a weird tickle fight. You've got the kid who kind of like goes in, right, like commits. And pretty soon you find yourself in a real wrestling match that you hadn't really planned on being. Um, God was wrestling with the man. God could have, you know, 
stopped anytime. And that's when we wrestle with our little kids, right? We can stop anytime and move on. So this man saw he would not win the match. That's interesting. God's not going to win this match with this man. Why not? Because he committed. He committed to what was happening. He committed to not just the confrontation, but he committed to... Because listen, if they wrestled all night, at some point in the middle of the night, Jacob had to go, this is not normal. I mean, I would think it would have started at the beginning. He would say, this is not normal. But somewhere during the night, he recognized this is not normal. Right? So the man says, let me go. The dawn is breaking. (laughs) Why is the dawn breaking the reason why they stop wrestling? Like, were there rules to this? All we know is that a man showed up and he wrestled, and at dawn he was like, hey, dawn's coming. Should we know we were supposed to stop wrestling? So Jacob said, he says, the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I'm not going to let go unless you bless me. Jacob, somewhere during the night, recognized he was not wrestling with just a human being. He was wrestling with somebody that needed a blessing. And you know what we see in this? We see commitment. Jacob held on all night. He wrestled all night. And then even when his hip is taken out of socket, he still holds on. He committed to the change that was about to happen. And that's part of the process. Crisis brings confrontation at times. Confrontation wakes us up to the fact that we're in the midst of a changing process right now. And we got to commit to that change. He commits. He holds on to this man. He says, I will not leave unless you're blessing me. So the guy says, what is your name? But that's a loaded question. When your name means deceiver. When your name means usurper. When your name means cheater and liar, somebody asking you your name is not just asking you your name. It's asking you your history. It's asking you your character flaws. It's asking you all the things that you regret and that you're ashamed of. All those mistakes you made, all those sins that you made. That's what was held in his name. So he says, what is your name? And he replies, Jacob. You know, God does interesting thing in scripture all the time. And I think this question is much like the question that God asked Adam and Eve when he went into the garden. He shows up in the evening and he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? We could argue that's a dumb question for God to ask. But it's not when God wants to engage you in a conversation and give you grace and allow you to come forward to him. So he says to this man who he certainly knew his name, what's your name? Because I need you to confess who you are and what you are. And so he does. He says, my name's Jacob. But it wasn't a declaration, it was a confession. Because if confession is another step in this process, this is an important part of this process for transformation because we will never change until we are honest about our faults, our sins, our weaknesses, our mistakes, and our desire to change. If most people were honest, they'd say that they just don't want to change because that confrontation with who we are is too hard. We don't want to look in the mirror, and we don't want to be honest about what needs to change. Also, because we understand the futility of not being able to change from who we are sometimes. And this is why I love what happens next. 
because the man says, no, that's not your name. You think your name is deceiver, cheater, liar, usurper, circumventer. That's not your name. Because I'm here now and I'm involved. From now on, your name will be Israel. Because you have fought with God and with men and have won. And I love the phrase God and men. It's like they're trying to sort out who this person really was. Is he God? Is he man? We know that that's sorted out in Jesus. So we move from crisis to confrontation to commitment to confession. But then we see something really amazing. We see cooperation. This man, what's your name? Oh, you told me confession. Hey, it's not your name. I want to cooperate with you. Your name's Israel now. Your name's something different. Remember I told you about my coach, Coach Hamilton? I didn't like him the first day. It was a very negative interaction. I mean, negative for me. But over the next three years of my high school basketball career, and that's all the career I got, this man was one of the most consistent people in my life. He was hard. It was not easy. I suffered under him. But after a while, I found myself going to his office in between classes to talk to him a little bit. And then like grabbing lunch and going to his office and hanging out with him and talking about stats from last night's game, but really wanting to hear a little bit more. It was a time in my life, right, where I needed some other input than just my parents and my close friends and relations. Like I needed somebody who who meant something different to me at the time. And I pray that all our kids have someone like that in their lives at some point. And over the next three years, I became the man that I became because of him and his willingness to cooperate in my life in mentoring me and growing me and coaching me and making me into a person that I very possibly would not have become. Meeting Coach Hamilton was negative at first, but it became one of the most positive things in my life and the transformation that I took. And listen, I didn't graduate from high school a fully formed human being. Nobody does. Right, It took a lot more years. In fact, I think God's still working on me. But his willingness to cooperate. And this is the thing about change and transformation. God wants to cooperate with you in the process of that change and transformation. He's not going to leave you, and he's also not going to leave you with your old name. Because it's going to be something that's so powerful that you need new nomenclature for, you need new language for, you need new words for. What's fascinating is that Jacob says, all right, well, tell me your name. And, and the way the Hebrew says it, right, why do you want to know my name, the man replied. I just get a feeling that's a bad translation, and I'm no Hebrew scholar. But I feel like this is a perfect moment for him to say, you know who I am. You, you know who I am. You don't need my name because you know who you've been wrestling with. Maybe you didn't know at 8 o'clock last night, but at 3 this morning, you figured out something. And when I touched your side, you knew who it was. And then Jacob does something, and we know he knows he was God. Because Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The process of transformation begins with a crisis, often moving to confrontation. It needs a commitment to that change. And it requires that we confess who we were before. But then it moves to cooperation with God. But it's not without its pain. The story ends like this. 
The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. There is a lasting effect to the change that happens through Jesus Christ in our lives. His was physical. Ours might not be. Hopefully, the compound effect of change are things like wisdom that we carry with us, growth, maturity, and an unwillingness to go back to the way it was before. Jacob had a limp, but he also had a new name. And that meant something was different, and he wasn't going back. It was a marked change in his life and a marked change in his character. It's like five verses this story. But it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if we approach crises in the same way, thinking this is the moment of transformation. This is when it's going to happen. This is a process that God is about to bring me through. I wonder at the end what your new name might be. If you could name, your, name yourself anything, what would it be? You know, it's interesting. I always wanted my middle name to be my first name. Timothy's great. I like it. I'm not mad about it, Mom. Don't get worried. But I always wanted it to be my middle name. You know what my middle name is? Jacob. <laughs> I named my first son Jacob. It's my grandfather's name as well. But what would your new name be if God took you through a night of wrestling and on the other side? And by the way, a night for us may be seven years of change and transformation. But what would your new name be at the other side of it? Crisis, confrontation, commitment, confession, cooperation, and change. So this is why we ask the question, how is the Christophany in your life leading to transformation. Because sometimes that Christophany is the crisis. Sometimes that Christophany is the confrontation. Sometimes that Christophany is the confession or the cooperation that results in the change of who we are. And listen, the change doesn't come because God doesn't love you the way you are. The change comes because God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to get stuck. He wants you to continue to grow and learn and become more compassionate, more loving, more merciful so that the rest of the world can go through that same process and change towards Christ as well. This is how he builds his kingdom, one person, one character at a time. And sometimes it's a night-long wrestling match and sometimes it's a decade-long wrestling match. But if you commit, God's going to be with you to cooperate with you through it. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, just want to thank you. Lord, I want to thank you for showing up that night, as weird as it seems, in his tent and wrestling with them. Lord, maybe show up in our lives a little less dramatically, but still show up. So that we can be brought through the process of transformation and change and grow through you. Lord, we want new names, but we don't want to pick them. We want you to pick them for us so that our legacy might continue to grow through those that we bring into the church to meet you, through our families, through our friends, through the way that we've learned how to love and the way that we learn how to love well. Lord, we ask this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.